1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard
2: Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can subscribe to both of those letters by going to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York City during normal work hours. 718 457 1426. 718 457 1426. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show and encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also, uh, invite you to go to my website, jtaylormedia.com, where we have an off uh, a lot of very good articles, uh, some of which yours truly has written, but other uh, contributors as well. Uh, I do want to thank Dynasert and Metanor, our sponsors for today's show, for making this show economically viable. Metanor Resources' uh, shareholders have suffered a lot of dilution during the recent years with the horrible gold markets, and but they have made a discovery that is very promising, and um, the share price has been beaten down very dramatically uh, along with most of the mining shares. Uh, But uh, the new discovery combined with uh, an $1,800 gold price in Canada uh, is uh, perking things up a bit for this company. So it's one you may want to pay some attention to. And I will be talking to Ron Perry uh, on this show in the near future for an update on Metanor Resources. And I also today want to welcome Avino Silver and Gold Mines back as a sponsor to this show on Avino is a company under the leadership of David Wolfen, and he's doing a great job there. I think David is doing a wonderful job in increasing silver and gold production in Mexico, and now they're getting ready to uh, start to expand and grow and open a mine, the Braylorne gold mine, in British Columbia. I do expect to have David on my show in the near future as well. I think perhaps early April, he'll be coming on to give us an update on what's going on uh, with Avino silver and gold mines, and certainly uh, with an improved gold environment, uh, things are starting to look up for the gold miners. Just one more note before we get into today's show. Ellen Brown, who has been a guest on this show several times in the past, will be with me again next week to discuss an article that she wrote, and it is posted at J. Taylor Media. The title is Exposing the Libyan Agenda, A Closer Look at Hillary's Emails. Hillary Clinton's emails reveal that the reason the U.S. and NATO went to war against Gaddafi had nothing to do with Gaddafi feeding Viagra to his soldiers, as we were told, and encouraging them to rape, um, to use rape as a weapon, essentially, against uh, de- certain females. Or even, did it have anything to do with the revenge of the airliner that Gaddafi uh, is accused of having down decades ago? In fact, thanks to Hillary's emails, we now know that the murder of Gaddafi and thousands of other people in that country uh, had everything to do with defying the IMF in using a gold-backed dinar to compete against the petrodollar. So thanks to information revealed from uh, declassified emails from Hillary Clinton, we now know the truth about the motives for going into Libya. It's a very well-explained article, and I do hope that you'll go to J. Taylor Media to read this, Exposing the Libyan Agenda, a closer look at Hillary's emails. We may get a chance to ask uh, Mr. Angdell this afternoon, um, later in the show today, whether uh, what he might think of, of that notion as well. So uh, in any event, let's turn to today's show. I've titled today's show, A Bankrupt U.S. and NATO. What does it mean for gold? And as I mentioned, uh, William Angdell will be with me. Ivan Bebek uh, will be with me to uh, to talk about uh, what's happening Uh, With his company and uh, also Michael Oliver is with me and will be talking to me and uh, giving me his update on the uh, gold and equity markets in just a moment. The U.S. and NATO are, for all practical purposes, bankrupt and there is little hope for the financial restoration, I believe, because the monetary system is built on the sinking sand of debt. When Nixon took us off the international gold standard in 1971, he not only paved the way for massive reallocation of wealth from those who create it to the miners, manufacturers, farmers, and inventors, but he also, uh, but he also paved the way for bankers to destroy capitalism by destroy by destroying uh, the price discovery of capital by manipulation of interest rates. As a result, the global economy is becoming ever more insolvent day by day. Not allowing market forces to work, dislocations that threaten to throw the world into a depression, the likes of which may make the 1930s look like child's play. I I regret to say a virtual certainty, I'm afraid, for America and the world, save for the grace of God. With the massive intervention against free markets by the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world, all of which have signed on to Keynesian lies, the middle class in America and Europe, as well as everywhere basically are revolting against that uh, so-called so that such extremes so-called extremes are arising in the political front uh in europe and the united states and uh, really political status quo is being threatened i think more than i can recall at any time in my 69 years of life and that would include the tumultuous vietnam years as well well as i noted william engdahl will be with me uh, in about 35 minutes or so from now um to talk about a recent article he has written titled Behind the Façade America the Bankrupt the Bankrupt Hegemon. Now I believe William will have some things to say also about Russia and China, how they're building up their gold reserves to protect themselves from what those countries see as an inevitable decline of the western economies as a result of the irresponsible economic and warmongering policies of the United States and NATO, especially since the fall of the Soviet Union. And I believe William may also have some interesting views on Donald Trump. We'll certainly want to hear what he has to say as someone who resides in Europe. In a few minutes from now, as I mentioned, Ivan Bebek will be with me. Uh, He'll be talking about Uh, the company there that that he's leading up. He's done a remarkable job in the past. Uh, He and Sean Wallace and their new venture up in the Nunavut uh, is looking extremely good. So we hope that you will uh, stick around to listen to what uh, Ivan Bebek has to say in just a few minutes from now after our first commercial break. Um, So, But now uh, we do have uh, Michael Oliver with me. And uh, I want to thank you again for joining me, Michael. Oh, glad to be here. Always good to have you. Um, you, I want to ask you about the equity markets. Uh, I see, it just seems to me, Michael, you know, they don't go down. Equities only stay flat or they rise. I know you've made the point that they've gone nowhere in the last year or two years or whatever, but there seems to be continued optimism and a belief that they're never going to decline. Uh, What what are your thoughts? What are your structural models telling you right now about the S&P?
3: I think the rally is about over clockwise. It may be this week. Uh, My best guess is uh, that you topped this week. But um, let me take you back a bit. Let's go to 2008. Exactly the same configuration of technical factors occurred. Uh, Again, there's always fundamentals, and I'm aware of them. I have an Austrian bias and so forth, but I don't let that cloud my, my view, whether it's up mm-hmm. or down in a given market. But in 2008, when we closed out 2007, the price was at uh, 1468 It was 100 points or more above the low of the year and uh, about 100 points off the high. So it was squarely in the middle of the year. It had been a, a sideways up-down year. The Fed had intervened in August to drive prices to a new high in October of 2007. And the market uh, wobbled off a bit by December. Uh, I noted at the time that if you opened at that price in the year 2008, you would break and blow the bottom out of annual mm-hmm. momentum. Uh, three prior years of momentum lows is where you measure price against, in this case, a three-year average, <clears throat> were violated as soon as you opened 2008, and the market immediately dropped 200 points. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, what happened next? First off, that after that initial price break, which was a statement sell-off about what, what was ahead, Uh, You had destroyed your annual momentum trend. It was now down. And you had also taken out several price lows that preceded that. Specifically, there were two lows in 2007 at the 1370 price level, and we took those out by about 100 points. Then, and only then, the market rallied. And it rallied 14.5% from that early year low. Mm -hmm. Almost got back up on the year, and frankly, had it gotten up on the year, it wouldn't have mattered to the momentum situation. But it's very similar to what we're seeing now. So far, we've had an 11.5% rally Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. measured from the recent low. I think it is a bear market rally. I do not trust it. I think all it's doing is uh, further soothing the bulls and uh, obviously upsetting the bears. But it's just a process that happens many times after a top is made, it is not simply a matter of going from from the high to the low. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, I, I, re- I regard this as a counter-trend rally.
2: Alright, so people should keep, um, uh, people shouldn't get too comfortable with owning uh, the stock market as a general rule right now, I guess.
3: I, that's, that's my opinion. I think the damage has been done from momentum. Price can uh, flip-flop around and try to convince you otherwise, but it is doomed. Uh, I, I, it's, it's a matter of when we roll over again, uh, I, I can say from a price chart point of view, you could even forget momentum at this point, the recent highs that we exceeded was a shelf of highs in the S&P at 1950 price mm-hmm. level, mm-hmm. just above 2000 right now. You ever close a week out much below 1950? Assume it's over.
2: Okay. All right. Assume well, the rally's over. All right. Well, two, 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 two and a half minutes left to go, and that's about all we have here for the first segment here. I want to ask you about gold. Regarding gold, there still yeah. are a lot of Wall Street pros Calling for a sub one thousand dollar price, but you don't seem to be buying that idea. You you stated in no. your weekend letter uh, that you uh, to your paid subscribers you said, and I quote, "I think the clock is running out for those who want and expect a collapse." End of quote. Clo- end of quote. Why are you uh, backing? Uh, well, not I, in backing. in
3: fact, I'm I'm just about to issue a report. Will we hang up here that I prepared okay. this morning? On the S and P and gold, but on the gold issue, uh, I think we've had what can be called a correction standing in place,
4: mm-hmm. where
3: we surged after a annual momentum of gold broke out early February, and quarterly momentum, massive basis that didn't even look anything like what the price chart looks like. Uh-huh. Price soared; the first initial high took us up to twelve sixty, rapidly. A matter of uh, about two weeks. he went from the low 1100s to 1260. At that point, the market went into a congestive phase on price, where you could basically draw a line to about 1230 price, which is where we've been trading today. And that intersects the, the weekly action of the uh, prior five weeks and this week. In other words, we're oscillating around uh, a sideways level. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, momentum is correcting from a very overbought condition, which existed six weeks ago. But rather than sell off cool off the overbought condition, the market has simply decided to to cool off in place, uh, a sideways congestion in other words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't buy into the bear arguments. I think the bullish breakout we had in February down the 1140s to 1160, this is based on annual momentum, was a statement that cannot be ignored and mm-hmm. that the new trend for gold is up. All we're suffering right now is a congestive phase.
2: All right. Well, then that uh, that's good news for those of us who are long in the in the shares as well. I would guess.
3: Yeah, they're even, of course, acting better than gold on a percent basis. The mm-hmm. the gains from their low have been quite strong. GDX is what I generally use to measure that. Uh, okay. GDX, for example, is nineteen, and I think this year you could see thirty nine.
2: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, we'll look <laughs> forward to that for sure. Uh, Michael, I know you just you just mentioned you're going to put out a report as soon as we hang up here, as soon as we finish talking. And you also noted that you would allow my listeners to uh, go to your website, um, MS, MS, um, it's OliverMSA.com. Oliver Oliver and, yes. and they can request a sample copy of what you put out today, right? That's correct. Free sample. Okay, okay, free sample. It's hard to beat, folks, and I'm one of those people that like to read, must read. I read everything that Michael uh, sends and also trade, uh, very much use his work to trade, to do my own trading. So uh, I want to thank you for that very generous offer, Michael, and we'll look to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Jay. Next week, hopefully. All right, well, folks, we do have to go to a break, but don't go away because when I come back, Ivan Bebek will be with me. Uh, to talk about his company and the, the wonderful prospects uh, it has in the Nunavut. Uh, they are in the process, I believe, of building a world-class gold deposit. They certainly have the potential to do so. So don't go away. You won't want to miss what Ivan Bebek has to say.
4: Dinosaur is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor-trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dinosert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dinosert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol D-Y-A, and the OTC BB symbol D-Y-F-S-F. The website is Dinosert.com.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. He's the Executive Chairman of RN Resources. Orin Resources is a gold exploration company, and and the reason that I've added this company to my own newsletter portfolio and why I own the shares in Orin is because of the track record of the management of this company, headed by Ivan and his partner, Sean Wallace. Before I go any further, perhaps I should mention that the uh, company trades in Toronto under the symbol AUG, and it trades in the United States where I've purchased it under the symbol GGTCF, trading around a little over a dollar in U.S. money, 49 million shares only outside, Standing, giving it a market cap of around U.S. 50 million dollars. Well, some of you may remember Ivan. Um Actually, uh, from 2014, when he was on this show, we talked about Caden Resources, which was one of the few companies in 2014 to do exceptionally well. And they did that by discovering and advancing a gold deposit in Mexico that was purchased by Agneagle Eagle. Actually, the the company Caden was purchased. It had other assets besides the, the flagship, but it was purchased for $205 million in a very difficult market, as you'll recall, 2014. Shareholders, including yours, truly did very well, and so I appreciate that. Ivan's business and financing skills are joined with the geological skills of his partner, Sean Wallace. Sean and his team of geologists hunt down highly prospective projects, and Ivan raises the money just to put enough drill holes down in the ground or to take the project as far as he can to optimize shareholder value. The Cadence success was certainly not the first one, uh, the Baybeck a Wallace team. Both were co-founders of Keegan Resources, now asanco Gold, which is a commercial success. It went into production last year, expected to produce about 400,000 ounces of gold this year. So the track record is there. Several months ago, Sean Wallace was here to first tell us about Oren's project in Nunavut. There is uh, never anything certain in the world of mineral exploration, that's for sure. But given the method of operation on the part of the Bebek Wallace team, I believe the odds strongly favor, still in success, this time for shareholders of our resources. So I'm very pleased to welcome Ivan back to this show. Thanks for joining me today, Ivan. Great. Thank you very much, Jay. It's a real pleasure to be back. Always fun to talk to you because you bring with you an excitement that is, uh, well, I would say not all that common, especially coming out of a bear market like we've just come out of, but it's, uh, it's always good to talk to you. You get my blood moving through my veins more rapidly than many other people I talk to. <laughs> You know, Thank you very uh, much. It, it really is. I mean, excitement, uh, obviously, you have reasons to be excited, which we're going to hear about. Um, Sean introduced the story, you know, of your 100% owned Committee Bay gold copper project, but that was several months ago. So for the sake of those that may have forgotten or may not have heard about the story yet, could you please give us an overview of the Committee Bay project uh, and what you're planning to do into this year with that project?
5: Sure. Um, on the back of Caden's success, obviously, um, we weren't done. We wanted to do more. And, you know, while I was in the process of selling Caden to um, Sean was uh, with our chief technical person. They were hunting down the planet to find the next biggest best gold thing how do we do something better than we did with Caden or with Keegan which were two great successes for us and that's kind of been our theme and they looked at about 150 projects and you know it was coming out of the the Caden cloud of of joy in a bad market and I wasn't fully looped in on what these guys had gotten gotten a hold of and then I quickly learned last summer that um we we acquired a hundred sorry 300 kilometer long greenstone belt with uh several high-grade gold occurrences throughout the belt and a start of a deposit of about 1.3 million ounces of uh, just over 8 grams per ton, which is extremely rich in terms of grade. But that wasn't, you know, the the impressive part because that part of the world, you need at least 4 or 5 million ounces of 6 grams to be excited. and, And that kind of is the theme of the Arctic, what people are finding there. But the prospectivity of the entire belt is what blew us away. And if you look at in our website, we have a nice video that kind of flies you through the entire belt and what we're going to do this summer, you'll get a chance to see a lot of different targets. And, you know, there was a theme in Keegan when we found assay, and the comment was, there's gold everywhere here. And there was. We got to 5 million ounces, eventually took over a neighboring asset for 10 million ounces as a total gold resource. In Mexico, we got there, there was, you know, a few hundred thousand ounces we eyeballed, and we drilled something that still wasn't a resource when we sold it, but it looked like it'd be a million and Half to two million ounces on its way to more, and um, you know the the one difference here in the Arctic is I could take Keegan and Caden and I could put them up against you know a couple of the thirty or forty targets that we're going to go explore over the next few years, and they would become they would compete with just one of those targets, and, and that kind of gives you a chance to understand the scalability. The second comment I'll make is. I talked about grade, and, and grade is really the king in any market, good or bad. It solves all problems, and it can take you to tough parts of the world to be, or it can survive in a bad market because it brings your cost, or the profit margin will, will remain intact. Every target we have here, and there's a lot of them, they have grade. So there's gold everywhere, but there's grade everywhere. And when I talk about that, and, and what gets me excited and keeps me up is there's a target not too far from that million three ounces of 8 grams at 3 Bluffs that is very expandable. We think that will grow, you know, into the 3 to 5 million ounce range or possibly further from recent data. We're starting to find out about it. But this target is slightly north. It's probably about, you know, 5 or 10 kilometers to the north. It's an entirely different trend that's parallel, but it's not part of the same system, which is a good thing. But what we're learning is there's, you know, averaging 8 to 10 grams across 8 kilometers along mm. a big structure with up to 190 grams per tonne gold. Nice. Never drilled by anyone else. Same geological signature that we have at Three Bluffs that's running 8 grams. That's one target in one area. If you look at Three Bluffs and the nearby surrounding, we have about four or five targets that I could get into details about that are like that. But mm-hmm. you go look down the belt 100 kilometers away and you, you'll hear about our cord corridor. There's 32 kilometer long structure we found one side of it has gold all over it. The other side is no gold on it, which confirms that it is a structural break in the earth. And the ice direction basically smeared the gold to one direction. Again, nobody drilled this structure. The amount of gold that's near it goes up to 300 grams or several, five, six, eight grams per ton, We're very close to it on a boulder train. So there's, there's gold and there's grade everywhere. And cool. so what Sean and I did was we've tried to find the biggest and the best and i think we overshot that in a very good way and um, we leveraged pretty pretty significantly to expand both our technical team and our marketing team because you need both of those going in full force to make these discoveries and and create wealth for your investors but the technical team is led by a guy by the name of Michael Hendrickson. You'll hear his voice in our video and he'll fly you through the project and of where it is today and I think even not being a geologist you'll get a handle of how big this really could be. Um, He's assembled a team of world experts of geologists from his Newmont days which is where he came from and uh, he was a structural geologist that had seen everything Newmont had around the world, how these deposits were discovered, how they were created, how they behaved, and he's taken that team that's now retired and moved on from Newmont, he's assemb- assembled them in our little junior, and the stuff he's doing is, is going to be what leads us to, I think, you know, several very big discoveries along this belt.
2: Well, that's really that's really exciting to have a team of that caliber with a junior mining company with fifty million dollar market cap is is very uh, very impressive. And uh, I should tell our listeners it's rnresources.com, dot com a u r y n resources com. Go there to uh, to watch that video and to learn more about about the company for sure. Well, I want to ask you, Ivan. Uh, You have a very prestigious neighbor up there, one you're quite familiar with from your Caden days, Agneagle Eagle, uh, they're active up in the Nunavut, and they're producing gold and producing it very efficiently. I think it's something around $600 an ounce. I think last year, or maybe it was the first year, they started producing about 380,000 ounces. But it must give you some comfort, I would imagine, to have a neighbor of that caliber up there demonstrating that it can be done, that you can produce gold very profitably in that frigid area of the north
5: yes um, you know the it's it's I'll start off by saying it's a complete coincidence that the company that bought our last company, one of our our most respected major that we've had a chance in terms of how they run their business and having low cost producing mines in great jurisdictions that they're our neighbor We didn't plan it this way, it just happened to be this way, but you know I think you're you're seeing two technical teams that think alike, and obviously they're a major, they have bigger capacities, I mean, to buy us or to go and explore more aggressively and spend more money, which they're doing, but, um, you know, I just caught Sean Boyd's video on Kitco, on the BMO coverage, and uh, I listened to him talk about none of it, and I know some other comments he's made as well, and, um, you know, the endowment of gold up there and the grade of gold is what's going to make his company and our company once we make discoveries a lot of money and provide that lower cash cost per ounce. He made a comment that really resonates really strong with me, and we'll talk a bit about geopolitical jurisdictions worldwide Uh because there's gold mines everywhere. And he said, you can get business done up there, and you can go build mines. And that's something that's really significant, and shareholders should think about that because we've done business in Africa. We were very successful there doing it, and then we did business in Mexico. But what shareholders don't know is how many flights a year I was on for Africa and how many how less I had to go on the road for Mexico how much easier it was to get a premium in Mexico versus Africa mm-hmm. and if I go through the, the list of countries worldwide south and northern parts of the hemisphere I mean there's some places that would be amazing gold deposits we know they're there but you can't get into Russia or Kazakhstan it's just not going to work right mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. so w- we're doing it again for the third time and we said to ourselves okay, there's something really good in Canada. How good is it? And how good could this be going forward? And, you know, last year, and you'll see it this year, there's been a lot of insiders purchasing more shares. And and we're doing this for the reason of greed, because we see the value in a Canadian gold discovery. And um, when you think about where you're putting your money and some of these things you invest into, the only challenge is, and I'll touch on a comment you made is, is the cold weather that you go through in the winter. And so you can produce year round, but exploring, you get a little bit limited. You get about six months of the year of low-cost exploring. You could drill year-round if you want to. You know, I think on our website, you'll see a picture of our drills that are all encased, Mm -hmm. which would allow you to do that. Um, You would want to do that in a a more aggressive gold market where you have a really good currency and you're not diluting as much to go expand a big discovery. But in this market here, you know, you look around, you look at TMAC, they're about to produce. That's the uh, the Hope Bay uh, asset. Mm -hmm. They're... Their stock is performing extremely well. It went public last summer, and uh, you know that's a, a four and a half to five million ounces of nine grams per ton. You look at um, Sabina was a really big win for the markets in the last bull market, but you know they were caught going into feasibility on the falling market. Of course, they went into the penalty box, but you know, I think they have some great deposits and they're gonna find quite a bit more. A comment uh, that I've been hearing is that the gold endowment in the Arctic may surpass Quebec and the Abitibi gold belts. Hmm. And wow. um, what your shareholders and what investors have to realize is when we talk about high-grade gold anywhere in the world, but primarily in a place like Canada, and you think about every discovery hole that you drill, you're finding a lot more ounces when it's great, and that's something that is important because you get to a big discovery a lot quicker than it would take in a, a lower-grade deposit like our previous discoveries.
2: What can you uh, tell us about your drill program this year? What, uh, what is it designed to accomplish, and, and when will you begin that, and when might we see some results? So we're going to plan to drill about 10,000
5: meters right now, and uh, we're just designing that program as we speak. We're going to test at least three or four different areas of the belt and then we've only explored the bottom one third of the belt and we came up with a series of targets from last summer. We're actually going to do the other two thirds in terms of geophysics, till sampling, a lot of the exploration you do before drilling, but the drilling we do is purely discovery focused. We could go and be conservative and slowly add ounces to three bluffs and grow a resource and be safe, Mm -hmm. but nobody, you don't do well being safe and we know that's there, that's the easy one, I think a lot of people, technically, who look at it can assume that's going to get bigger and you could do it moderately. What we're going for, uh, we're going for that major discovery hole, the one that gives you that very big reaction in your share price and allows you to go raise a lot more money and do a much more aggressive program next year. Um, this year, we're planning 10,000 meters next year. We like to do triple that, 30,000 meters up there. And, uh, you know, we, we've geared ourselves up for discovery. I think that's something that, shareholders can look forward to. We're drilling at least a hundred holes. Some of them will be deeper. A lot of them will be shallower just to find the easy high grade gold. Everything is right from surface. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I think you'll hear us marketing quite a bit before we go drilling this summer, because we want to give everyone a chance to see what we're doing and how big the prize is before we go drilling and hit our first discovery holes. So, you know, I, we're buying it as insiders. We want, we're, we're buying it because we want to own more before that happens. And, uh, we think this will be our discovery year on Committee Bay. We think it'll be really big for us.
2: All right. Committee Bay looks really exciting. Uh, that's why it's in my newsletter. But you're also looking other places, and I know you have a very rigorous uh, screening process, and I don't know if we have time to get into that, but I know that you are You just announced recently that you've acquired quite a big land package in Peru. What can you tell us about Peru? What do you see down there that's got you excited?
5: So. Uh, just a bit of information for the for the audience. Um, Peru has the world's largest gold mine in Yanacocha, mm-hmm. uh, or one of them, 60 million ounces of gold and a, a huge amount of silver. I don't know the exact number, but the gentlemen we're working with that are all former Newmont, you know, they, they know Peru like the back of their hands. And they love <clears throat> Peru. And they love Peru because they're big systems, oxide gold, which is the more profitable gold that you can mine. You look for two things. You either look for grade or you look for oxide, mm-hmm. and oxide meaning the most processable, cheapest thing to produce. And when you take what's been found in Peru, and you look at some of the size of the, the, the gold mines discovered there, you think, wow, it's impressive, 60 million ounces, I mean, that's unheard of. And you take the experts that were part of putting that together, and that were part of exploring that, and you say, is there anything else in Peru you like? And that's what these guys are coming up with. Um you know, it, it Don and me the other day we're in Toronto and New York marketing our company and I'm listening to Michael, my, our chief technical person talk about everything and the type of projects that he's looking for with his technical team because they're all from Newmont, are the type of projects that would move the needle for a major like Newmont, which is one of the biggest gold companies in the world. And so we've announced the acquisition of some hectares. Uh, we haven't given much details. There's a few more things that we've mentioned that we're we're looking to acquire. And uh, when these things come in, I can assure you that they will fall very comfortably into this Big look that I'm talking about. Not necessarily a 60 million ounce target. We don't need to be that big. That's, that's once in a lifetime for all mining companies in the world. But, you know, something in the range of a, a 5 to 10 million ounce oxide deposit would be something that we'd hope to come out of with in Peru. Acquiring Peru is really really an obvious move for us because it is another really good geopolitical place to be, but the experience with the Newmont technical team is is unheard of and uh, and that's something we have to leverage but uh, also you know th- this is a, it's a double-edged sword it, it gives us the chance to be drilling 12 months of the year and as you very well know you know discovery is what makes shareholders have returns it leads to takeovers and so on our discovery, drilling will start this summer and be ongoing for the next few years or until we get to, you know, that, that better good of a, of a takeout or something like we saw with Caden or, or maybe to a, a very fortuitous share price, you know, like we saw in both of our previous companies. And so um, that, that's what's exciting for me as well. Um, you know our group well. You know what we've done in the past. I'd say we've done a lot more with a lot less and when I compare it to just Peru or just the Arctic, that's how good these assets are. And the reason why they're that much better this time is because the technical team got a lot deeper. You know, I kind of say it's like the Mayo Clinic for, for people. If you ever been to the Mayo Clinic or, or to your regular doctor, you go to a regular doctor, you see one doctor, you say, look, I'm sick, I don't feel well, what's wrong with me? The doctor starts to try and, you know, go through their book of knowledge and, and figure out what's wrong and they play with a few different hats and they try to guess. If you go to the Mayo Clinic, And hopefully people don't have to go there. But if you go there, the process is seven or eight specialists from different parts of your body will analyze different tests. And these are all specialists specific to an aspect of your body. What they do next is they sit in a boardroom and they discuss their findings. And then they sit you down in the boardroom after all of that is done and they give you the prognosis. That's how you get the best, most rounded, most intelligent response or most accurate prognosis. That's what we're doing in the exploration model. Taking different specialists, about seven or eight of them at least, And they're all applying their major skill set, their career-long skill set. They're putting it together. They're sitting down in one room, and they're weighing all of their findings, and they're coming out with targets in Committee Bay. They're coming out with acquisitions and targets that you'll see in Peru. These are some of the the best guys that I've seen in the business, and I say that with a lot of respect, and their track records would show it. But I think shareholders can expect a lot from them. I certainly do, and, and you'll see that in the months to come.
2: All right, Ivan, uh, how well funded are you to uh, to carry out and to finance your drill program, your exploration program in the Nunavut this year?
5: So in terms of funding, um, Jay, we, because of our recent success and the fact that we are able to finance part of our financings ourselves and we like to participate that way, we get offered a lot of money. The project certainly got a lot of attention, and um, we're working towards adding more. We have about $3.5 million in our treasury, which certainly doesn't cover what we're going to spend in Committee Bay, but what we are planning to do for a funding there will be very fortuitous to our share price and at our, for our current shareholders.
2: Well, Ivan, I know, uh, I know that, that you are sincerely saying that because members of the management team have been buying shares. I mentioned earlier that there are only about 49 million shares outstanding. Could you give us a sense before we conclude our discussion today, how much of that is insider-owned of those 49 million shares? Can you give us a sense of how much is in the float perhaps as well?
5: yeah okay well great question um, I think as insiders um, we own about 20 just over 20 percent uh-huh. and uh, that that number is increasing daily if you follow our insider filings and um, you know a lot of people ask me why are you buying so much of your own stock and I mean it's not really the question to ask but here's the answer is because I'm greedy and I know what we have here and what we're going to do with it and, um, I'm, and that goes for other people in the management team. Um, our share price is certainly performing better than most so we're not doing it to support our company. We do love being aligned with shareholders and, and that's something we like to demonstrate as much as we have enthusiasm. We're excited and we're, we're talking about some major world-class discoveries that we plan to to do here um, but ultimately, um, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm greedy. I have a lot of choices to to buy a lot of different gold companies and mm-hmm. have but my largest continual purchase is our own company and um, I can't find another company out there that has a comparable asset in scale or a comparable technical team to go with it. There's some very good companies and some very good assets out there but nothing with 300 kilometers along an entire gold belt you know with the kind of grades that we're seeing along committee bay and so you know I think for us it's, it's a very easy decision for us to make as investors to, to be buying our own company on the flip side the other question you asked was what's the float like I'd say you know 90 or 80 percent of our float is people who followed us from the past and I'd say that out of 49 million shares out we could probably talk to about 40 of them into you know one large boardroom and yeah. uh, Uh, This is what happens when you have successful deals com- 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 repeating time after time, you tend to get a, um, a very good reputation and a very good business model that people like to support and continually finance. So, I know we're, we're, we're meeting some new investors that didn't get a chance to invest into Caden. Uh, some people would not buy Caden because there was not an actual resource publicly announced, and they missed out because we sold the company prior. Uh, in the case of Committee Bay, the type of targets we're drilling could lead to the same path like Aiden went to, but um, you know we want to be a lot more defensive and hold on to this a lot longer because the prize is much bigger and because we're going towards a rising gold market. You know right. those two things make it very easy for us to own more of our own company, hold on to this a bit longer, and the targets are endless and they and they're very big and the grade is really good.
2: Well, we're going to have to leave it go at that. We're out of time. But I want to thank you very much, Ivan, for sharing this story with our listeners, because I do think it is one in which um, there's a very high probability that people are going to do very well with this one. So I want to thank you very much for being with us again, and we'll look for an update once you start doing some drilling and, and things progress uh, either in Peru or uh, for, for sure up at the Nunavut. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.
4: Dinosaur is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by thirty to forty percent, increase torque, and provide up to fifteen percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dinosaur's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long term benefits to the environment. Dinosaur trades on the TSX Venture, symbol D-Y-A, and the OTCBB symbol D-Y-F-S-F. The website is Dynasert.com.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: Welcome back
2: to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again William Engdahl. William Engdahl is an award-winning geopolitical analyst, a strategic risk consultant, author, professor, and lecturer. He is uh, has been on this show a number of times, so I won't re- read through his whole bio. You can pick it up at the Voice America channel. Uh, But he is a a prolific author, writes constantly uh, short articles, but also writes a number of books, the most recent of which is The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy. And I would suggest that you go to J. Taylor Media, J-A-Y Taylor Media, go to my website, click on a picture of the book, whom the God, the lost hegemon, whom the gods would destroy, and it will take you right to the place where you can buy this book. It's a, it's an excellent book. It's very inexpensive, but if you want to really know what's going on uh, in terms of geopolitics now, not years ago, but now, uh, go. You, you must read this book. It's just very very important. So thanks for joining me again, William. Really glad to have you with me again.
0: Glad to be here, Jay.
2: Always good to talk to you. You just recently uh, traveled to Russia, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. What you're seeing, uh, the sense that you have about the economic situation in Russia. Uh, why don't we start with that, perhaps? Okay. Uh, you know, what we hear here, what we hear in our country is the sanctions are killing Russia. They are down. They are distraught. They are uh, they're really hurting. And if we we've got to just keep tough with Russia, we got to really make sure uh... that we do the right thing against that bad guy putin uh, and we are told all the time that the russian economy is suffering it's not doing very well uh... you know but ours of course by contrast is doing not real great but quite a bit better but what is your sense of uh, you as one who's traveled to russia what is your sense of the of what is really going on there economically
0: i i was there a week and a half ago for several days and several meetings in moscow what, uh, what I see in Russia is the Russian people are by no means uh, depressed and, and uh, in a panic about the economy. What the sanctions have done, ironically, is force Russia to do something it should have done two decades ago, and that is build up its own uh, self-reliant industry. They're doing it now for defense uh, suppliers. And most interesting, they're doing it for Russian agriculture, such that in 2015, Russia became the largest wheat producer in the world, mm. large, lar- larger than the United States. So uh, they have declared their agriculture to be uh, legally free from any genetically manipulated organism, GMO, uh-huh. It's a huge, huge victory for, for sanity and, and good health. Mm-hmm. And uh, now they are aiming to become the world's largest exporter of organic or natural foods without, without these poisons on them. So uh, many things are developing inside Russia as a result of these sanctions. Uh, there's the Chinese proverb, uh, take a crisis and use it as an opportunity. And that's what is happening in many respects. The other thing, some of these things don't happen overnight, of course. But the other thing that's happening is that because Washington pressured the EU, the EU foolishly clicked their heels and saluted Washington and the Obama administration and imposed their own silly sanctions on Russia. So Russia sanctioned the import of EU food to the uh, Russian supermarket shelves, Uh and that had a huge positive effect on Russian agriculture last year, and Mm -hmm. it's continuing this year. The next thing that happened is that Russia turned away from the European Union, they saw that it was a dead-end street politically because of Washington's pressure and all the provocations in Ukraine, and they started getting closer with China. Now, what's emerging there is the most beautiful economic project in world history over the last at least 100 years that I uh, am aware of, and that's called the New Silk Road Economic Belt or the One Belt, One Road high-speed rail interlinkage that's going to crisscross all of Eurasia from Beijing to Moscow with high-speed rail links, from Moscow to Tehran, and uh, everything in between. And it's Mm. going to be built on gold. This is a beautiful thing. The Chinese are aiming to replace London as the gold-fixed center of the world, or or the... uh, you know, the US uh, futures exchanges for gold and put it into Shanghai and build the Silk Road rail lines along where there are known un- undeveloped gold reserves. Uh, this is just beautiful because yeah. what you have is a series of gold backed currencies like Gaddafi in Libya tried to do before Hillary Clinton had him uh, assassinated. Uh, and that is going to happen with, with a defense component we saw. Up until yesterday, or today actually, when uh, Putin ordered the uh, military forces and the aircraft uh, out of Syria to go back to Russia, job done, uh, mission accomplished uh, for the most part, that uh, Russia has a formidable military strike force, nothing that Washington wants to play around with. It's the only one in the world that uh, is, is on a par with the U.S. or even uh, six exceeds it in in, uh, many areas of weaponry. And that has some Washington armchair generals uh, literally getting brown spots in their trousers. So (laughs) China and Russia are coming together not only economically, not only politically through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but also militarily to defend that Silk Road. And this gives the the basis of the seed crystal of a new monetary order, one hopefully that uh, I think will be much more human than the uh, dying dollar system that has been around since
2: Bretton Woods. Right. Well, let me ask you, uh, William, do you think that uh, is there a growing trade now? Then is it happening now, or is this to what extent is it happening now, and to what extent is it happening in the future? And do you think that this growing trade with between Russia and China and some of the other countries that surround there, you have the CSTO and the SCO. Uh, do do you think that that may be actually taking some trade away from the West then now, and maybe contributing to the, uh, to the to the declining economic scenario of the West?
0: Yes, I, there's no question about it. And China sees the Silk Road project, the Eurasia century, as my Chinese friends call it, uh, in contrast to the American century that was proclaimed around World War II, that the uh, Eurasian century is the way that the Chinese economy is going to transform from cheap labor, you know, low-value-added assembly work and so forth, into high technology. China today is the world's leading manufacturer of advanced railway equipment they have built more railroads in the last 10 years than any nation on earth and uh, perhaps all of all of the west combined so they they are the cutting edge on that technology russia is beginning to catch up they're beginning to develop uh, in the cooperation with china uh, these new rail projects and that is going to link overland and this is the nightmare of, of geopolitics since the time of Alfred Mackinder in, in London in 1904, that mm-hmm. the Eurasian continent, Russia, China, would begin linking each other with the world's largest population. India is now becoming a part of that as well. Uh, and beginning to connect over land where the sea power of the United States is impotent. It, it can't... Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So they try these silly little color revolutions where they send uh, <laughs> retired ambassadors like like Richard Miles who should have been put out to pasture 20 years ago after he uh, toppled Milosevic in Serbia, but was pulled out of retirement to try to create trouble in, in Central Asia. And, uh, you know, that's all they have to, to answer. And, uh, you know, training uh, ISIS or... Uh, Al-Qaeda terrorists and, and sending them to bomb certain uh, oil pipelines in, in Xinjiang province in China or whatever, but uh, they have no strategy, as, as was just revealed by the uh, blundering uh, performance of, of Washington in the Syria business since Russia came in on September 30th and right. exited today. So, you know, the, the entry and the exit both caught Washington completely by surprise.
2: Yeah, it seems to have. So what you've got here is this massive land this, this land mass that is just mm. in, incredible mm. uh, that, that the uh, American sea power is impotent, cannot do anything about. And so what are they trying to achieve? What is the U.S. trying to achieve by trying to keep China from patrolling its own sea lanes? I mean, it, as an American who tries to think um, honestly and... Uh, fairly, I can't imagine how we would feel if China were sending their ships into the Gulf of Mexico or to either of our coasts. We would be angry as hell. Well, more than angry. So, uh,
0: it's uh, I think whoever the next president is, if if the nation survives the elections uh, intact, uh, China and Russia are going to be the number one item unless there is a uh, a march to sanity among among the American population that they stop supporting these ridiculous wars everywhere. But, uh, you know, wars for oil, wars for this, wars for
2: that. Let the, me ask you... Okay, go ahead. No, yeah, no, no. No, I was going to ask you, getting back to the issue of gold in China and Russia, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a, my understanding that Russia has been exporting some of its oil to China in exchange for gold. Russia, mm-hmm. of course, produces its own gold, uh, it is a, a major producer of gold. China is the number one world's producer of gold. It's been importing gold like mad. Yeah. I, I can't see that the, that the U.S. Uh, has the gold it claims to have, given all the gold flows to China. So I'm just wondering, uh, with respect to the uh, Shanghai Exchange that you talked about, yeah, do, what are the chances? You know, we have our exchanges here, the COMEX and the LBMA in London, and those are really. Um, they're really dishonest exchanges where uh, you know no. one yeah. ounce of real gold to a hundred or two or three or four hundred ounces uh it's just oh, really a paper game a paper yeah. game that the bankers are driving are, are controlling the price through the paper markets mm-hmm. to what extent do you think that could be a danger something that could happen in Shanghai where the bankers would take over and start to to bastardize the the markets mm-hmm. in China just as our our guys have here in the in, in the Western world.
0: That is of course possible, but I, I think uh, <laughs> one very good outcome of this catastrophic uh, venture into margin stock buying encouraged by the Chinese government uh, last spring, April, May, June, and the resulting collapse when people realized what a bubble they'd created. Uh, one benefit of that is that the C government, the President C and, and his prime minister, have had a dramatic reaction against you know, uncontrolled speculation. They, they bought in some of their uh, technocrats, probably trained at MIT or Berkeley or Harvard or Princeton or wherever they send them, and then come back, come back and work in Wall Street for a couple of years and say, look, this is how it's done in Wall Street. And so China applied that, and they got, you know, they blew their face off almost. So I I think that's been a wake-up call to the Chinese that these Western financial market models are not uh, the best way to do business. And I think they don't need to have this this shell game with gold that the uh, New York and London banks uh, have been playing for years. There's even uh, a strong body of thought out there that the gold that is dealt or presented as gold by certain Wall Street banks and, and uh, funds and so forth uh, is not really gold at all. It's fool's gold. It's uh, gold-plated tungsten or, or some such similar, which has got virtually the identical weight as gold. And, uh, you know, if you're going to buy physical gold, I suggest you invest in a good drill and, and drill a hole in that gold and see what's uh, underneath the first few millimeters.
2: Yeah. Well, there's that, and then there's the paper gold, of course, that, that is so, we know so much about people on Wall Street don't want to own the physical bullion, so they just simply own the paper, thinking in their own minds that they actually own that paper. But if they ever wanted to call in all of those claims, there wouldn't yeah. be enough gold around to do it. So, you know, yeah. I, just, I just wonder about that, because it seems to me America got off the gold standard because it wanted to expand its empire. The only way it could finance itself going was at the Vietnam War and beyond and continually was to be able to pull this con game called the petrodollar, and it used its military to be able to control the dollar, make sure that these countries like Saudi Arabia demanded payment in dollars, thereby putting a bid under the dollar. And now, uh, if a country like Gaddafi's Libya, which was doing extremely well on its golden dinar until Uh the U.S. decided it didn't like its progress too much, uh, countries that want to uh, remain within themselves, it seems to me they could use... A China and Russia, at least for a while, could be honest about it, perhaps. I would like to think so. Uh I would like to think so. So your read of it is that that things are are not probably as gloomy in Russia and China as they're painted here. But let me just ask you, with just two minutes left, William, I can't help but ask you about the the Trump phenomenon. And today we will learn a lot more here uh, after the election's clear, whether or not he is unstoppable or not. Uh, just with the two minutes we have left, what are your a minute and a half we have left? What, what is your what are your views and comments on Donald Trump? Donald Trump, uh, I call a Mussolini with a pompadour. <laughs> his his, poli-
0: his politics are pure Italian fascism, total control, top down. He's a thug. Uh, an article of mine will appear in the internet in in a few days with the title "Mafia Don." Uh, a, a mafia Don with a pompadour and I go through 50 years of Don Trump's history with organized crime figures from Roy Cohn back when he was in his 20s uh, Trump uh, you know, evenings out at Studio 54, if anybody knows the uh, glitterati cocaine scene in, in Manhattan in, in the nineteen uh, late 60s and 70s they know what Studio 54 is mm-hmm. and uh, every time Donald Trump uh, is questioned about these mafia ties, he says, "Oh, I don't recall that name. Oh, it's uh, really. I think if I saw him, I, I wouldn't know who he was," and, and so forth. So either one of two things: Donald Trump uh, is telling the truth, and that indicates that he has uh, Parkinson's or, or uh, uh, yeah, Some Parkinson's disease. disease. Uh, Alzheimer, rather, yeah, or he's lying, and both of those are grounds to not let him get within an inch of the White House. All
2: right, we're going to have to let it go at that, William. We're out of time. Always never enough time with you, but uh, hope to have you on again sometime in the near future. Thanks so much for being with us I'm, today. Well, folks, that is all the time we have. Uh, next week, Ellen Brown will be with us, and I hope Michael Oliver as well. Ellen will talk about her article, the one that uh, William referred to, uh, uh, having to do with Libya, and Gaddafi's ouster. And uh, so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.